Baptism is a public display of our unity with Christ. It reminds us that our old self, marked by sin and rebellion, has been buried. And that by God's grace, we've been raised to new life as new creations. Baptism assures us and announces to all who witness it that we have been washed by the blood of Christ. We have been adopted as sons and daughters in God's family. And then last but not least, baptism binds us to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. One faith, one cross, one baptism. Now, of all the churchy stuff that we've talked about so far, baptism is probably the strangest. It's the most explicitly religious thing we've discussed, the most clearly ceremonial. And it's even got a special word to describe it that we used a moment ago. Sacrament. Well, as we continue today, we come to another sacrament, the sacrament of communion. Now, some people choose to refer to communion not as a sacrament, but an ordinance laid down by Jesus. Some prefer to call it the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, a word meaning to give thanks. But regardless of what you choose to call it, we typically refer to it as communion here. Regardless of what you choose to call it, the sacrament of communion is different from the sacrament of baptism in one very obvious way. Baptism is intended to be a one-time event, marking the beginning of our faith in Christ. But communion is something that we participate in frequently throughout the entirety of our life in Christ. So, for example, if you're a Christian right now and you were to take communion almost weekly for the next, say, 40 years, we're talking about hearing roughly 2,000 more communion meditations eating 2,000 more pieces of bread, and drinking 2,000 more cups of juice. So I think it's safe to say that if we're going to do something so much, there's value in asking why we do it and what communion even means. Maybe we already have an idea of what communion means and why we do it so much, but the occasional reminder never hurts. So open up to Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have a Bible to call your own. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that we got up, we got dressed, and we came here. There are other things we could be doing. There are other things that often challenge or compete for our time and compete for our attention. But Father, I pray that this morning we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping you, I pray that it would bring you glory and that it would be good for us and that all of us would leave here glad that we spent even just an hour and 15 minutes or so focusing on you and how good you are and what you've done for us. And so, Father, be with us as we read and learn about communion. I pray that we would take communion in a way that honors you and pleases you, and that we would practice it here as a church in a way that honors you and pleases you. And thank you most of all, not for the institution of communion itself, even though that is so incredibly important in the life of the church, but 
Thank you for what communion points us to, for who communion points us to, that communion points us to Christ. Thank you for Christ, that he lived, died, rose again, ascended, and will return. That is the hope we have, that is the confidence we have as Christians, week in and week out. We love you, we give you all the glory, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of the most important events in our lives happen over a meal. More often than not, a first date happens over a meal. If things get serious enough, we might eventually meet that person's family for dinner. We spend holidays gathered together in kitchens and dining rooms. We have job interviews at restaurants and coffee shops. We often make special announcements and crucial decisions while sitting around a dinner table. Some of our most intimate conversations and most memorable moments happen over food and drink, two of our most basic needs for survival. And that was the case in the ancient world as well, maybe even more so than today. Eating a meal with someone, particularly in the privacy of one's own home, was a very purposeful gesture of unity, hospitality, and generosity. Who you ate with, when you ate with them, and what you ate could say a lot about your identity. And if you read the Gospels, some of Jesus' most famous words were spoken at meals. Whether those meals were with disciples, sinners, religious leaders, tax collectors, or hungry crowds. But before we get into the Gospel of Matthew... There are several famous meals in the Old Testament worth mentioning. When you really think about it, the biblical story starts with a meal gone wrong in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had no shortage of food, and yet at Satan's prompting, they disobeyed God's ban on eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, when they partook of that meal... They placed a barrier between themselves and God. Their close fellowship with God became separation from God. The sinful separated from the holy. And the rest of scripture is the story of sinful mankind looking forward to the day when we can be restored to a right relationship with our creator. And the rest of the biblical story is about God, our gracious creator, Kindly and mercifully and graciously taking the initiative to restore us to relationship with him. But then along the way, there are tiny previews of what that restoration would look like. For example, in Exodus chapter 24, Moses, his brother Aaron, and his two nephews, Nadab and Abihu, are invited to worship at the top of Mount Sinai. Seventy elders of Israel are invited to, but only Moses is allowed to come near to God. And all of these people get a small glimpse of God's glory. But the truth is that none of them, not even Moses, was able to see him fully. God and his grace allows these worshipers to eat and drink on top of Mount Sinai in his presence but even then, there's still a certain degree of separation. There's still a distance. Another preview is seen in Isaiah 25. Isaiah prophesies that 
one day sinful mankind will be redeemed. Sinful mankind will be restored into the perfect presence of God himself. There will be no more separation between God and man. No more barrier of sin. And Isaiah likens that day to a beautiful feast, a meal of worship and celebration. Now, those are interesting passages about meals in the presence of God. Maybe they're helpful, fascinating. But again, we're here to talk about communion, a very different kind of meal. So reading from Matthew 26, verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now, before we talk about the passage that we just read, think about some of the verses around it. Think about the context of this event. Tensions are high in that hot, cramped upper room in crowded Jerusalem. Leading up to this, Jesus has repeatedly predicted his death. The bloodthirsty religious leaders are breathing down his neck. A woman has symbolically anointed his body for burial. Judas has plotted out his betrayal. And what does Jesus do in response to all of this? How does he choose to spend some of his final hours with his disciples? Well, he shares a meal with them. As we often note in our weekly communion meditations, this isn't just any meal. It's the Passover meal. That's the yearly event where the Jewish world would intentionally pause to remember God saving them from slavery in Egypt. But to be honest, the word remember isn't even strong enough to describe what they're doing. It's more like reliving. They're reliving the meal their ancestors ate the night before their deliverance. This is a way of participating in an event that occurred long before these people were even born and yet is still such an important part of who they are. They aren't just sitting back and thinking about what happened long ago. They aren't just sitting back and reading stories about what happened long ago. They're feeling it. They're tasting it. 
They're smelling it. A Jewish text called the Mishnah says this about the Passover meal. In every generation, a man must consider himself as if he himself came forth out of Egypt. In other words, they weren't just taught to remember something that happened a long time ago to people they'd never even met. This event in the past still shaped their identity in the present. And they were to act as if they were there. But in the verses that we just read, Jesus takes this monumental event, the Passover meal, and refocuses the attention on himself. This meal in the upper room isn't just about what God did a long time ago in Egypt. The meal in Matthew 26 is about what God is going to do right then through Jesus in Jerusalem. God is about to spare his people from judgment again and save them from slavery again. But this time, the physical death of a family's firstborn son, that's not the judgment we're talking about. The judgment is eternal death for all. This time, it isn't the physical slavery of being in chains in Egypt. It's the spiritual slavery of being in chains to sin. And this time around, the blood of a lamb on your doorpost won't save you. But the blood of Christ on the cross will. Now, eventually, the meal of Matthew 26 would become its own institution, related to, but distinct from, the Passover meal. And like the Passover meal, this new meal, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, it's to be practiced regularly. The Passover was celebrated yearly, but there's evidence to suggest that from the very beginning, this meal was practiced weekly in the early church, which is why we practice it weekly here. Some 2,000 years later, Christians are still taking the bread and taking the cup and still remembering what Christ has done for us, still reliving the events of that upper room the night that Jesus was arrested. But sadly, when you put it into the hands of sinners like us, even the practice of taking communion can go wrong. We see an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So in short, the Christians who Paul writes to in Corinth have corrupted the communion meal beyond recognition. This meal is supposed to bring them together to remember Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. 
But they've degenerated it into an occasion of selfishness, class warfare, drunkenness, division, and just general debauchery. Wealthy Christians are getting there first, eating all the food and drinking all the wine to the point of becoming drunk. And they're leaving poor Christians who may have had nothing else to eat or drink all day. They're leaving them hungry and thirsty. As a result of this, the church's reputation is being dragged through the mud and fellow believers are being neglected and humiliated by their own brothers and sisters in Christ. It's gotten so bad that Paul says they're better off not meeting together at all if this is how they're going to act. If this is their idea of practicing the Lord's Supper, they shouldn't even dare call it the Lord's Supper anymore. They are disgracing that name. But then Paul continues in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. So after Paul roundly condemns the Corinthians practice of the Lord's Supper, the way they've corrupted it, he reteaches them what this meal is all about. He takes them back to the words of Jesus himself, the words that we just read in Matthew 26. Paul makes it clear that the Lord's Supper is about remembering the past, what Jesus would do on the cross shortly after that meal in Matthew 26 came to an end. The Lord's Supper is about announcing in the present what Christ has done, proclaiming the Lord's death, a message worth proclaiming. And the Lord's Supper is about looking forward to the future. We eat this meal regularly. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, whenever that may be. He could come back this week, and this might be our last morning taking communion. Or he could come back long after we're gone. But we take communion because we believe the story of the cross, as told in the pages of the New Testament. We take communion because we believe the good news of Christ's death and resurrection needs to be proclaimed. And we take communion because we believe that Jesus will one day return. 
And every time we drink this cup and eat this bread, we tell the world what we believe about Christ. We tell the world that we believe the gospel when we take communion. But we should also remember Paul's teaching about communion in addition to heeding his warning about communion. Paul hints that some of the Corinthians' recent hardships, illnesses, or maybe even deaths could be a form of God's judgment against them for disgracing communion. I know that sounds wild. That sounds hard to wrap your mind around and maybe is a tough pill to swallow, but that seems to be what Paul is saying. He's indicating that through their actions, they have trivialized the bread and the cup, which symbolize Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And by doing so, they have mocked God along the way. Now, I don't claim to know if a Christian today who takes communion in an unworthy manner would suffer the same fate that Paul describes in this passage. But I do know that we should examine ourselves both individually and collectively as a church body when we take communion. We should listen to Paul's teaching, but we should also heed Paul's warning. So as we come to a close and as we prepare to take communion ourselves here this morning, there are a few more things I think we should all keep in mind as we prepare. Number one, communion isn't only reserved for the people or the churches that think they have it all together. As Paul just said, we should certainly examine ourselves before taking communion. That is absolutely true. But Martin Luther made a good point when he said this. If you choose to fix your eye on how good and pure you are, to work toward the time when nothing will prick your conscience, you will never go to communion. In other words, communion is not for perfect people, because there are none. Communion is not for those who think they've earned God's favor. Communion is for those who know how much they need God's grace. Communion is not just a somber reminder of everything that we've done wrong, but a joyful reminder of what Christ has done right, what Christ has done for us. Another thing to keep in mind is that communion is a gift of God for our good. Living in a fallen and distracting world, we can easily lose sight of what Christ has done for us and who we are as a result. But the beauty of communion is that we have a built-in weekly reminder of the gospel. If communion is practiced rightly here at Prairie View, then you are guaranteed at some point in every single service to hear about the broken body and shed blood of Christ on the cross for your sin. Weekly communion reminds us that while we do need physical food, We also need the constant spiritual nourishment of the gospel. And then thirdly, communion brings us together. It's amazing to think that for 2,000 years now, Christians of every tribe, nation, and tongue have eaten bread and taken the cup. We stand with the Christians of the past, united to them in Christ. We stand with Christians in the present all over the world, taking communion today, maybe at this exact moment, and we are united to them in Christ as well.
And we stand with the Christians who will come after us, taking communion long after we're gone, united to them in Christ. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that communion is the superlative fulfillment of Christian fellowship. The superlative fulfillment of Christian fellowship. Now remember what we said earlier about Jewish people reliving the Passover meal and participating now in an event that occurred long ago. Well, we do something similar with communion. N.T. Wright says, When we break the bread and drink the cup, we find ourselves joining the disciples in the upper room. We are united with Jesus himself as he prays in Gethsemane and stands before Caiaphas and Pilate. We become one with him as he hangs on the cross and rises from the tomb. Past and present come together. Events from long ago are fused with the meal that we are sharing here and now. At Prairie View, we believe the bread and the juice that we're about to pass really are just bread and juice. However, don't be mistaken. We also recognize that this is no ordinary meal. So as we take it, we look to the cross of Christ in the past. We look at ourselves and we look at our fellow believers in the present. And we look to the future of Christ's return. This meal is a preview of eating in the presence of God himself in eternity. With no barriers, no sin, no separation. And it's all because of the person and work of Christ. So if you proclaim Jesus as Lord, you are invited to eat this meal with us now. You don't have to be a member of this church. And as we take this meal, we look forward to eating in God's presence in the future. We look forward to eating in God's presence in eternity. We have that hope and we have that confidence because of what Jesus did on the cross some 2,000 years ago. So let's take this meal, remember what Christ did, and relive the events of that upper room in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for who you are and for what you do for us. You are good, you are kind, you are holy, you are just, you are righteous, you are gracious, you are perfect. And Father, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We stand in awe of his perfect life his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. And it's only because of what Christ has done for us that we can dare call ourselves your children, that we can dare pray to you, that we can dare come into your presence, that we can dare speak about your love for us. It's because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So, Father, as we come to church week in and week out, we hear sermons, we hear prayers, we hear announcements, and realistically, we forget a lot of what we hear. But I pray that week in and week out, if there's one thing we remember, that we would remember what communion is about, that we would remember your son's broken body and shed blood on the cross on our behalf. Even if we forget everything else, 
Help us to remember that. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.